Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 48. The Screwtape Letters. Letter 24. The Ing Crowd. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. And today, I'm joined by a guest co-host, Dr. Douglas Beaumont. Doug, welcome to Pines with Jack. Great to be on, David. Thank you so much. Now, you and I have been friends for quite some time. Uh, we met online. I was actually trying to remember the other day how we actually got in contact with each other. I think it was probably through Devon Rose. That is likely. Uh, he, <laughs> he he puts a lot of people together, I think. And uh, yeah, we probably met on his Facebook page. Didn't he have? Uh, yeah, I think I think it was probably on there because I think that's. Did you meet Matt Nelson there? And yes, <laughs> yeah, I think I think the whole crew that you know we finally all met for reals at. Uh, the Catholic Answers Conference, um, but yeah, I, th- I think I think most of those guys started off connected to Devon. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading your website long before your conversion. Uh, but just before we start, can you fill in a little bit of background about yourself? Who are you? What do you do? What's your journey been? Yeah, um, so Doug Beaumont. I was a an evangelical seminary professor for uh, nearly ten years. And it was during my PhD studies that I basically spent five years reading my way out of evangelicalism and into the Catholic Church. So I entered the church in uh, 2014, and a couple of years later, I got the job I have now, which is the director of faith formation at a big parish in California. And I've since got a couple of books published and that kind of thing. But um, you know, I started off as an apologist for Christianity still do that sort of thing on occasion. But uh, as far as, as being Catholic, that's still something that's somewhat new uh, in the sense of, of official dates and, and whatnot. But I was already a big fan of Thomas Aquinas long before that. So I felt like I kind of slipped in pretty easily once a couple issues were resolved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember reading your website long before you converted and I enjoyed your work then. And in my opinion, it's just got better ever since. <laughs> well, I, I have some uh, better people. I got my back now. <laughs> <laughs> the source material has has become quite a bit better. Um, but yeah, it was funny. We, we were talking about Devin. We used to kind of follow each other as I was, you know, starting this transition, so to speak. And he was always very encouraging, and um, it was interesting because we we did a little book swap and all these kind of things. And then and then he actually ended up being my uh, godfather uh, <laughs> when I came into the church, uh, my sponsor. But I, I enjoy calling him godfather more because he's younger than me, so that's kind of funny. It is one of the great things in life to have a godson that you can go to the pub with. I have one. It's it's wonderful, and and it's great because I've got ones that are much younger. So when I talk about going to the pub with my godson. Everybody assumes it's the older one, but they're never quite sure. <laughs> That's a good one to keep them guessing on. <laughs> well, before we press on, there was one thing that I wanted to say to our listeners. Uh, thank you so much for all of you who wrote in in response to Letter 22. Uh, we had been discussing what the deadly odor that Screwtape was referring to. What actually is it? And several listeners wrote in and pointed out that they think it's the aroma of Christ, which you find described by St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Uh, so we will talk about that some more because I have a suspicion that it might come up again before we're done with this book. But anyway, let's plow on. First up, we got the song of the week. And Doug, this is designed to really encapsulate the message of today's letter. And today's letter is all about groups, cliques, coteries. And listener John Marr offered a suggestion, not one of us, uh, from what he assures me is Peter Gabriel's excellent third album. I was also tempted by a classic British band, Madness, and their song, which I actually recently introduced to my wife, Our House. But in the end, I chose a song which I absolutely love. It's a rhythm and blues classic. It's called The In Crowd, and it's performed by Dobie Gray. Here's a little bit of the lyrics. We breeze up and down the street. We get respect from the people we meet. 
They make way day or night. They know that the in crowd is out of sight. At a spot where the beat's really hot, oh, if it's square, we ain't there. We make every minute count. Our share is always the biggest amount. Other guys imitate us, but the original's still the greatest. There's something quite special, I think, about an Englishman reading out the lyrics to a rhythm and blues classic. I think it just really captures it, you know? No, I love it. I'm, I'm reminded of the uh, commitments. Um, yes. You know, the... Uh hardest working band in ireland you know the uh what, what did they call themselves the, the white I, I don't remember what it was but great movie i love yeah other guys imitate us but the original still the greatest that should be the uh tagline for your show i think well if anybody else releases a new c.s lewis show that's exactly what i'm going to send them in a tweet <laughs> you are the og of c.s lewis the thing is we're actually we're actually not there are ones that predate us but uh, <laughs> we, we have our own niche had anyone heard of C.S. Lewis before Pints with Jack came along? Is that what you're trying to tell me? People tell me that they had heard of C.S. Lewis before, but I'm I'm not quite sure, you know? I mean, it's kind of a niche, uh, you know, collection of works. <laughs> exactly. We need more people quoting him on the internet. That would help. <laughs> As I was talking about the different songs there, I mentioned my wife. And quite often you are on Catholic Answers. And she always gets really excited when you're coming on. Oh, she's such a sweetheart. Yeah, with really poor judgment, which is why she married me, you know. <laughs> it would be great to get together with, with uh, both of you guys sometime. Well, hopefully COVID will be over soon and we can start traveling again. Yes, absolutely. Well, definitely keep me on the list. Absolutely. Got to get got to get up to the Bay Area soon anyway. Well, that was the song of the week. Next up, we have the quote of the week. Comes from today's letter. The idea of belonging to an inner ring of being in a secret is very sweet to him. Play on that nerve. And now we need the drink of the week. For the drink of the week, I am drinking the leftovers from Amrut, which is a single malt scotch that I had in an earlier episode. And Matt kind of pulled me up short and said that I had spoken too negatively of it. So I wanted to drink it again today and give it a bit of a fair shake. Doug, are you drinking anything? Uh, yes, I have a Reese's peanut butter cup chocolate shake uh, from Baskin and Robbins. Um, it is a uh, multi-malt. Uh, <laughs> Sounds beautiful. Yeah, you know, it's a nice rainy, cold, cloudy day, but I walked by and it was just calling to me. So, um, yeah, I'm just basically drinking my weight in sugar right now. <laughs> it's going to lead to a great evening in the sugar crash. <laughs> my kids will, will be sitting all over me on the couch as I fall asleep into a, a nice ice cream coma. Well, with our respective drinks, uh, we should toast somebody. We toast Gold Level supporters on Patreon, and today we are toasting Gary Ayers. If you'll raise your glass. Gary, we pray that you'd always find a home with us here at Pints with Jack and a welcoming community on our Slack channel. But above all, may you always find your ultimate home in the only society which really matters, the Holy Trinity. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. That is nice. Matt, I do, I do like this scotch. It's, it's fine. It's fine. It, it's just no Lagavulin. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> what would you suggest for a scotch for someone that is not a drinker, for someone who is you know, still recovering Baptist, um, but would like to experience some of the finest things in life? It's a really tough one because it really depends on your palate. So when I first introduced Marie to scotch, I introduced her at the generally what I would call the softer end of scotches. They were generally sweeter, lighter, and she just wasn't a great fan. And so I eventually gave up trying to introduce her to scotch. And I just carried on drinking the stuff at the, the, the peaty, smoky, heavy end of the spectrum. And bit by bit, she started sipping on my scotches and is now a fan of Lagavulin and Lafroig. So it kind of really depends on you. But what I would suggest is just find somebody in your vicinity who likes scotch and has a selection and just go over and say, can I taste some of your scotches, please? By and large, they will be very happy to introduce you to their favorite scotches because if you like it, you'll buy some and then they can come over and drink yours. Ah, excellent plan. All right, I will, uh, I'll put the word out. <laughs> oh, and one thing that is also helpful, you can often quite get little selections. So uh, Glenmorangie, for example, they've got a little mini pack where you can get three or four of the different kinds of Glenmorangie. And you can do the same thing for Glenfiddich and all of the other ones. So it doesn't necessarily have to break the bank. But by and large, I would say find somebody with an existing collection where you can just sample a little bit 
and then get an idea of the sorts of things that you like. And as soon as you have one or two names, you can find other ones that you'll like fairly easily. Very nice. I like it. Well, with that wisdom, let's proceed to the 100-word summary for Letter 24, which was first published in The Guardian on the 10th of October, 1941. Screwtape has discovered that the patient's girlfriend regards those not sharing in the beliefs of her group and the values with which she was raised as ridiculous and even stupid. Screwtape wants to nurture this in Wormwood's patient. He is now in love and part of an engaging, intelligent group, prime conditions under which to look down on others. As usual, the patient's thinking must be kept confused, allowing explicit pride in neither Christianity nor his set but always being condescending towards outsiders. Screwtape then concludes, castigating his nephew for filling his letters with irrelevant news of the war. As an aside, we're going to be talking a lot about exclusive groups today, uh, cliques, or as some people here insist on called, pronouncing it, cliques. What, what would you say? Clique or click? I, I have to go with click, but um, oh dear. You know, I'm okay. a Californian, so I don't have an accent. So I, I would say <laughs> you, uh, you can probably trust that one. Okay. Yep. Okay. Uh, but one of the things that I want to say is that if listeners want to read more on what Lewis has to say on this subject, he's actually got two major works where he addresses this. Uh, the first is in an essay that you can find in the Weight of Glory collection. It's called The Inner Ring. And the second work is the chapter on friendship in The Four Loves. So I thought rather than just litter this episode with references and quotations from those books, I would just say, if you want to go deeper, those are the two works to check. But let's dig into today's letter. Scutate begins by saying that he's been speaking to a slum trumpet, the demon assigned to the patient's new girlfriend. And Scutate sees something in slum trumpet's report about the girlfriend which can be used to their advantage. Here's what he writes. It is an unobtrusive little vice which she shares with nearly all women who have grown up in an intelligent circle united by a clearly defined belief, and it consists in a quite untroubled assumption that the outsiders who do not share this belief are really too stupid and ridiculous. So Doug, before we move on to Screwtape's analysis, what do you make of this unobtrusive little vice? It's interesting that he writes this way because, of course, you would never get away with saying something like this uh, today, you know, anything at all, uh, comparing men and women where women do not come out on top. Um, so that's that's an interesting little side note there, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, I like the way the demons talk to each other because you know, this is something that in polite society, I would think, would be something of a big deal. I mean, if, if you were to actually know for sure that somebody thinks this way about people. I mean, this would be a, a massive social faux pas. You know? <laughs> and the fact that the demons are just going, oh, yes, well, you know, it's this, it's this slight little thing. Um, yeah, I found, I found that kind of humorous the way he speaks of it, because I would say in, in polite society, this would be a major sin, at least to be found mm. out. <laughs> well, that's the big thing for me. I think what he's describing here is not rare in the slightest. Pick your circle. People generally regard those who don't hold the same beliefs and opinions as their own. They think people are kind of ridiculous and probably a little stupid for buying into the lies of insert political party here. Yes. And it only gets worse when you are if, if you're privy to the actual conversations in the circle and you're not part of the circle, which, you know, we would assume these demons, you know, that's exactly their vantage point. Right. Is they're able to see these things going on, but not partake. Um, it gets easier and easier when you think you're just surrounded by people that think the exact same way you do to just feel so superior. And, um, you know, you look outside the circle to people that don't see things that are so obvious to those within it. Well, you know, they, they have a, a term for that now, the echo chamber, right? You know, the, the Facebook echo chamber, the Instagram, you know, it's mostly Facebook. But yeah, when we only hear the same things being said over and over again, it, it just becomes so obvious that anybody that doesn't think that way must either be sinful or stupid. <laughs> yeah. Um, because how else could you possibly explain them missing something that's so obvious to the, the select few? Now, you noted that Screwtape is kind of sexist here. He says that this is quite common among women, and he goes on later to say that, yep, this vice is typically unevenly distributed between the sexes. He says that males uh, habi who habitually meet these outsiders do not feel that way. 
And I actually think this is where Screwtape is at least explaining the why. Why does he think this vice is typically unevenly distributed? And in other forums, when I have defended Lewis against certain charges of usually sexism, I make the point that he does seem to think that some vices are more common in one sex rather than another. Uh, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't think that, in this case, say, the male sex is sinless. And no, they have their own faults. He comes again and again to male vanity. But I think Screwtape's comment here goes some way as to explaining why he thinks this is more often found in women. It's because he says that the men habitually meet these outsiders. And so I wonder, could he be saying that the difference in the sexes speaks more to the fact that at this time in history, more men than women typically worked outside the home, and therefore the men were more likely to come into contact with views more at variance with those of his family. Yeah, it definitely seems accidental to Lewis because, I mean, he specifically says males who habitually meet these outsiders. So this isn't just a simple comparison between male and female. It's it's that there is something accidental to being male, <laughs> something that's being added to that, that uh, has to do with meeting outsiders. And so, you know, sure, if you live in this, you know, cloistered culture where, you know, especially several generations ago where, you know, maybe the women are expected to stay at home and just run in their little social circles, they're not going to be in business. They're not going to be meeting people and forced to interact with people that don't think the way they do. Yeah, th th this could be a completely cultural statement. Um about a time that is, you know, may seem long gone to us now. Um, so it's it's good that he puts that little sub subtext in there, <laughs> so that we can we can you know sort of look at that and prove that that's what he was talking about, and not just making some kind of statement about gender. Now, Screwtape says that the patient's girlfriend's confidence comes from what she mistakenly assumes to be her faith, but he says, in fact, it's largely due to the mere colour that she's taken in from her surroundings. He writes, it is not, in fact, very different from the conviction she would have felt at the age of 10 that the kind of fish knives used by her in her father's house were the proper or normal or real kind, while those of neighbouring families were not real fish knives at all. Did you ever use fish knives at 10 years old? Uh, I don't know that I've ever used a fish knife at all. Uh, <laughs> I've used <laughs> knives on fishes, but as far as there being a specific utensil for that uh, uh, use, no. I, I actually looked them up, and they look quite handy. I, I think if I was a regular fish eater, I, I would definitely want to have some because they, they have some great properties for that sort of thing. But it, is that more of a British thing, would you say? Oh, excuse me, English? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the only time I encountered them typically were at my grandparents. My my parents certainly had a set, but they were very, fairly rarely used. Uh, but yeah, it's only in high society that I've typically ever come across them. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a rare time that we go beyond even three utensils in my house. So <laughs> Honestly, a spork get, can cover an awful lot right, of food. What else do you really need? Screwtape is saying here that this lady's confidence in her own opinions is really just because they're the ones that she grew up with. And I want to know what you think about this. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Because isn't this kind of the genetic fallacy? You're saying that, well, this is why somebody holds it. Therefore, it's got to be, got to be false. Yeah, there is a lot here. Um, just, just these couple sentences. I mean, you could do a whole class, I think just on <laughs> several, several things here. Um, just to kind of back up a little bit. I, one of the things that I maybe you've talked about earlier in other shows, but this idea that these demons know what is in reality going on as a reader, am I supposed to assume that the demons have read the situation correctly? Um, that, that's one thing I found no. myself asking as, as I was reading through this is in reality, like, do they actually have some kind of glimpse into human nature that I am supposed to take confidently as being true? Or do I need to also see that, you know, maybe they are ignorant and, are reading their own thoughts into the situation the way we often do. I would say that we're meant to take everything they say with a pinch of salt. In the preface, Lewis says that not everything Screwtape says is true, even from his own perspective. And in earlier chapters, we certainly found out that he has a blind spot, particularly when it comes to subjects like love and heaven. Right, yeah. So that, that was one thing that I just kind of kept off to the side of my mind as I was reading this was, okay, well, you know, let, let's not judge this young woman uh, too harshly based on the uh, report of a demon, <laughs> perhaps that would not be the most fair thing. Um, yeah. As far as the genetic fallacy, 
you know, the gen- just for the listeners, genetic fallacy is basically when a position or a conclusion is attacked based on its source. So we conclude that a position is false simply because of the person who holds it or where it came from. So, for example, somebody might say um, BMWs are terrible cars because they were invented in Nazi Germany or something like that. Well, what makes a car good or bad is not its origin story. It's it's what it is as a vehicle. So I would say that if if uh, Slum Trumpet or uh, <laughs> um, Screwtape was saying that Christianity is false because this person's faith is based on their upbringing, uh, then you would definitely have the, the genetic fallacy there. And, and, and you do see that even just in apologetics, you'll see people say, well, how could Christianity possibly be true? What about someone in Arabia who grew up Muslim or someone um, you know, somewhere else who grew up Buddhist? And the idea seems to be that, well, because you are a Christian, having grown up in America, that somehow privileges you and you shouldn't think that you're right because, you know, you didn't really earn it. <laughs> you grew up with a, a Christian culture, so of course you think you're right. So those, those, I think, would all run afoul of the genetic fallacy. I think it does speak to a truth, though, that we treat new things very often with a great deal of suspicion. I'm a Byzantine Catholic, and I've brought lots of Latin Rite Catholics to come and see our worship. And I, I see their suspicion and incredulity. What? No statues? Why are they using leavened bread for the Eucharist? What do you mean, the priest's wife? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact, I not, not to sound like a commercial, but I, I just wrote an entire book based on that premise that um, many times when we are investigating other faith traditions, at least in the beginning, we go more off of our knee-jerk reaction to the strangeness of the uh, tradition rather than really looking at the reasons for it or the principles behind them. And, um, you know, having had two kind of major conversions in my life, first from kind of an agnostic to a Christian and then from an evangelical to a Catholic, uh, I can certainly attest that just looking at something from the outside, it, it is often the case, like you say, that we meet it with a suspicion and a skepticism that we don't, that we never really put our own beliefs through, um, unless there's some kind of crisis. And, and, you know, we see this a lot too. I mean, I know lots of people that in high school were fantastic Christians. You would have thought they were just going to dedicate their lives to the Lord. And by the time they got out of college, they were complete skeptics. Um, and, you know, having moved from one circle to the other, now they think the Christians are the idiots. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt, and, and I don't think C.S. Lewis would have even included this in here if this was something that was so out of practice and so uncommon that his readers wouldn't be able to relate to it at all. Um, there's definitely the case where people grow up believing a certain thing, they're around it all the time, and they just never question it. And really, for the Catholic, this is a, a fairly serious problem, right? Because we we say that faith is not just accepting that something is true, but but making a free will decision that it is true. There has to be an, an element of the will there. And that isn't going to happen if somebody just slides into something because that's the way they were raised. Yeah. Now, despite this fault in the patient's girlfriend, uh, Screwtape says that her naivety is so great and her pride is so small that it's actually not a particularly useful line of attack against her. But it can be used with regards to Wormwood's patient. And Screwtape thinks it's going to be useful against Wormwood's patient because he writes this, It is always the novice who exaggerates. The man who has risen in society is over-refined. The young scholar is pedantic. In this new circle, your patient is the novice. And not only that, Screwtape says that it's compounded because he's mixing in high-quality Christian society, uh, Christian lives that he know that he is called to imitate. And of course, because he's looking through all of this through the rose-tinted glasses of love. And as someone who has moved from, as you say, from one circle to another, I'm sure you know this is true. When you move into a new circle, you suddenly want to uh, present your zeal very clearly that uh, in in the case of a conversion to Catholicism, you are more Catholic than the Pope. Oh, sure. Yeah. We all know that converts make the absolute best Catholics. Um, 
I think that's fairly well established. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to qualify that. Absolute best and also most annoying. <laughs> Fair? The, the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. <laughs> no, it is funny though. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, and I remember my early days as an evangelical Christian thinking I had to save the whole world. And my earlier days as a Catholic were a little bit more subdued because I was looking at losing my job and pretty much my entire uh, <laughs> ministry network. But I did find myself really rather shocked at how many people were really pretty upset about the fact that I was even considering the Catholic Church when I felt like they should be excited. I mean, I was finding answers to the the problems that we had all been noting for years and years. And yet, because the solution wasn't where they wanted it to be, I, I found out very quickly how unpopular my position was. So <laughs> they can kind of work both ways. Well, as far as Screwtape goes, he outlines his strategy with regards to the patient. He basically wants him to imitate this defect in his girlfriend. And he wants Wormwood to make sure that it's exaggerated until what was a venial sin for her becomes in him the strongest and most beautiful of vices, spiritual pride. I actually looked this up in Aquinas because he usually has overthought everything. And um, <laughs> I, I found that uh, he defines pride as uh, superbia, not suburbia, but <laughs> superbia, uh, where someone basically is aiming, aiming higher than they really are. And I, I had not really thought of pride that way. To me, pride was more like, you know, vainglory, which uh, mm. Lewis, I, I believe you guys talked about this before too, which is really kind of more of an outward show. When we say somebody is full of pride, I think that's often what we're talking about, that somebody that just shows off what they have and they just think they're so great. But I found it interesting that Aquinas says that it's it's even just the, the aim, just aiming too high than you really are. Um, and he says that because... The, the person's reason, which is supposed to kind of reel them in, hey, you know, that's not for you. You know, you're, you're not really that great um, th because the reason doesn't reel them in. That's where it becomes a sin. And then where it becomes such a serious sin, of course, you know, many would say that pride is, is the, the worst sin of all. Aquinas ties it into this idea that God is the one that kind of makes us what we are. And so to aim too high, to say that we are much better than we really are is actually to not subject ourselves to God and his rule. And I think C.S. Lewis has just put like Aquinas in the mouth of the demons here, where they very accurately point out, yeah, spiritual pride is that this guy is, is so far above his head and doesn't even know it. <laughs> um, but, but he thinks he is because he's learning to imitate them. And um, it was just a brilliant way to show that. I mean, that's one of the things you just have to love about Lewis is that he, even if he wasn't, a great teacher and writer of um, nonfiction, the way he can just tell a story and get these things across is amazing. So, you know, for someone that isn't necessarily wanting to sit down and read the Summa Theologiae, uh, <laughs> this this is a you know a superb um, description of of spiritual pride. Listeners will recall that we had an entire chapter on the subject of pride when we were working through mere Christianity. Uh, I think it was called The Greatest Sin or The Great Sin. And there's a line in there where Lewis says that those who have pride look down on others. And if you're looking down, you can't look up. Mm. And that's why it's the very anti-God state of mind, because you want to place yourself at the apex. Yeah. So I just I think that Lewis really captures this idea of somebody basically thinking much more highly of themselves than they ought and, you know, it's important to note that in Scripture, you know, thinking accurately of ourselves and having an accurate assessment is not the way Scripture defines pride. It's not simply saying, you know, recounting facts about oneself, even if you are kind of showing off. But really, it's thinking higher of yourself than you ought to think. St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 that we should not glory beyond our measure, um, but according to the measure of the rule which God has measured to us, which I think is pretty much, you know, the, the perfect verse for this particular situation that this guy finds himself in is that he's measuring himself by the people that he's around instead of what he really is. Absolutely. And Screwtape says that there are actually many things about this new circle of friends for which the patient can be proud of other than actually even their Christianity. 
He says they're better educated, they're more intelligent, they're just more agreeable than any other group he's yet encountered. And these are all the sorts of things that Screwtape wants him to focus on, their education, their intelligence, their niceness. He wants the patient to think that that's what makes this group important and special, not anything else about what is ultimately guiding their lives. And Screwtape also says that the patient is under some degree of illusion as to his own place in it. He says that the patient's got no idea how forgiving and charitable this group is being to him when they listen to him offer his thoughts and opinions. And he also doesn't understand how his own feelings for this girl are just colouring everything. I think this next section really sums up how the patient is thinking about the group incorrectly. He thinks that he likes their talk and way of life because of some congruity between their spiritual state and his, when in fact they are so far beyond him that if he were not in love, he would be merely puzzled and repelled by much of what he now accepts. After that, Screwtape says that he wants the patient to look down his nose at people outside of this group, outside of this new set. Not only are they less stimulating, they also don't have the advantage of having the girl colouring everything for him. And, and these are Screwtape's marching orders. He says, you must teach him to mistake this contrast between the circle that delights and the circle that bores him for the contrast between Christians and unbelievers. He must be made to feel, he'd better not put it into words, how different we Christians are. And by we Christians, he must really, but unknowingly, mean my set. And by my set, he must mean not the people who, in their charity and humility, have accepted me, but the people with whom I associate by right. Over the course of the season, we've said again and again, Screwtape doesn't want the patient to think clearly. And I think it's best exemplified here, because he wants him to almost think something, and then he starts swapping out what he means by each of those terms. Yeah, it's a brilliant strategy, because you're, you're trying to get him not to think, and what better way than to get him to think that he's thinking <laughs> when in reality he is not. Um, yeah, there, there's just some great moments in this in this little section. One of them, just to go back a little bit, I think, is the fact that this idea between kind of the, the venial sin and the mortal sin, the way Catholics would say it, you know, that one of the things required to actually commit mortal sin is not just to do something that's very bad, but to do it with knowledge. To, to, it has to be an act of the will, kind of like faith. And so he's he's describing here that you know you have these these women um, who basically through no fault of their own just think this way, but because he's come into the group, he's going to start actively trying to be like them. And in order to do that, he has to think he is one of them. And it's just yeah, there's there's this incredible scene in my mind at least where I feel like I've been there. You know, in in some sense, I think I think when it's it's partly it's just human nature. I don't think this is a Christian problem. I think it's just a human problem. But when you're coming into a group, when you're when you're especially if you're switching worldviews, this is kind of new. It's exciting, and oh my gosh, if there's a girl in the mix, forget about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, th this is a heady time, and if you're making new friends, and of course, according to uh, According to the reports here, um, you know these people are accepting him um, because of the goodness of themselves and not so much because of him. So now he feels elevated. He's seeing these great people. He's part of the group now. There's just so many, so many hooks there that can get into you when you're in a situation like that, and especially if you start to feel like you're kind of elevated above what you were before, this is making me better, you know, which, which is a good thing. We want to be better. We want to be around people that make us better. But in this case, you know, screw tape, Wormwood, they're going to have to walk a really fine line, right? Because he might actually become better um, if they, if they don't play their cards, right. <laughs> and something you said there, it's not even simply that he might recognize that this group is making him better. I think the real demonic side of this kicks in when I think that I deserve to be part of this group. And I'm reminded of stories I've heard about people who met C.S. Lewis or attended meetings that he was at, particularly his secretary, Walter Hooper. He said that he went to an Inklings meeting and 
he thought that he sounded so eloquent. Walter thought that he himself sounded so eloquent. And it was only after a little bit of reflection that he realized that Lewis had been setting him up each time and encouraging him in the good so that he was the best version of himself. And I could quite easily see how someone could then walk away from that thinking, oh my goodness, I am amazing. I'm so intelligent. I was chatting with the great C.S. Lewis and we are absolute equals. <laughs> yeah, and the trouble there is, you know, you, you, you're missing some of the virtue that you could be gaining, right? Because instead, like, like they say, instead of seeing mercy, instead of seeing grace and just, you know, manners, if you're thinking you've, you've earned it, you know, I've, I'm being treated this way because I am like this, then the chance to become a better person maybe slips by because you're not, you're not seeing the deficiency <laughs> that you need to work on. And instead you're thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. And now, now you're in the spiritual pride realm again. Hmm. And as you said, Screwtape has to walk a very fine line here. And in the next section of the letter, he talks about a number of mistakes, two main mistakes that Wormwood must avoid. And he also gives two goals that Wormwood has to achieve. And the first mistake is, he says, if Wormwood makes the patient explicitly proud of being a Christian, the attack will probably fail. He just thinks it's far too obvious. If the patient starts pointing to his Christianity as as the source of his pride, he's going to realize, ah, didn't the guy that found this, didn't he sort of say something about pride and it not being a good thing, something about being humble? Yeah, you're not going to get very far as a as a Christian being being proud of your Christianity, um, at least not when you come to realize that that's what it is and you start thinking of it in those terms, like he says. But gosh, I mean, th- this is this is such an easy thing. And again, I think it's a human thing. It's it's whatever whatever group you're a part of, it's hard because on the one hand, you're a part of the group. You want to be a part of the group because of some virtue. There's something in it that you think is good. And then you get in it, and now you think of yourself as good because you're in this good group. You know, how do you put the brakes on and not look down on someone that isn't in that group? Um, and I think that atheists or, or just non-Christians in general can they tap into this and in much the same way the demons do. I don't know that it's necessarily the case that there's really that many like super prideful Christians out there, but it's very hard for people to, to distinguish between someone who says here is reality <laughs> and I, I am, I am mirroring it. You know, I am reflecting the reality of the situation and you are not, and you need to change. It's almost impossible. I think for people to hear that sort of thing and not think that it's just prideful. And in fact, I was actually listening to an atheist commentator on the screw tape letters, and he got to this section and he was applauding Lewis. Oh, it's so great that he's realized, you know, how prideful all these Christians are because they really think they know something about God and, you know, really they don't. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, but the only reason you would know that is if you knew the truth about God mm. <laughs> and they didn't. I mean, you, you have a view too. You know, why is it that when a Christian discusses their view, they're prideful? And when you discuss your view, you know, you're humble. But yeah, when you're talking about the highest things, I mean, these are the very highest things we can talk about. And it just seems so humble to say, oh, you know, I just don't know. You know, nobody really knows. Let's just be good people and, you know, just drop it down to the very lowest common denominator. And then when you have somebody say, no, actually, we have figured it out. And, you know, here's a 500 page book explaining it. It's difficult not to, I think, confuse that with pride. But at the same time, it's also easy to actually get prideful. I mean, I know, especially with apologetics, my gosh, I mean, that that danger level goes up several notches at that point, because now you're not just someone who knows their Bible. You're not just someone who goes to church on Sunday, like those normal Christians. You know, I read Aquinas. I read philosophy. You know, I know science. The lure of that intellectual superiority is is very much there. And, and I think that in much the same way that Screwtape is pointing this out here, that the, the virtue of being a Christian, what, what makes it good to be a Christian is not that it makes you smarter and not that you read way cooler philosophers than everybody else. <laughs> it's that you're forgiven. It's that you're in God's grace. It's that you're moving toward heaven and these kinds of things. And again, surrounded by a whole bunch of people where Christianity is kind of the basic, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the floor. It's very attractive to think that you're one of the elite because you're reading the very best Christians and you're, you're discussing the very hardest Christian topics and theology um, and I, I can just say from personal experience, you know, being around that for 15 years in the seminary, it definitely creates a, a, you know, that community, which is good, starts to create a culture. And then it 
turns into a click. Yeah. <laughs> or click. Or, a or however you <laughs> a click. Um, again, I think it's a human problem. I don't think it's a Christian problem, but I think it's it's especially paradoxical as a Christian because on the one hand, we know that humility is a virtue and we know that we're nobodies, you know, nobody is just trying to tell somebody about, you know, the truth, but you know that you're being perceived as prideful and it's just, it can be really hard sometimes to just, you know, like, Hey, I've done my homework, buddy. You know, I know the Kalam cosmological argument, you know, what do you got for your atheism? You know? <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, that's a dangerous world. I think for Christians to, to be in. I really like, that you touched on both of those aspects that yes, it can lead to a form of pride, but it can also sometimes just simply be perceived as pride when it's not it. As soon as you're making a claim about objective reality to somebody that disagrees, it's hard for them not to think of you as arrogant, even if you are couching it in the best possible terms. And when I talk about evangelism, I like to describe it as one beggar telling another bread beggar where the bread can be found. Even in that case, you are still telling me something about reality and about how I should be responding to it, and I'm currently not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You you have the bread, and I'm reliant on you to tell me where it is. And even if that's all you're doing, you still kind of have one over on me. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, that that can be, you know, especially to prideful, you know, people, uh, that that can be very difficult to deal with. We just we don't want any kind of even hint of superiority and, and even just happening to know something that I don't know raises you up. And of course, the, the, the opposing problem is that if you ever do change your mind and now you see yourself in the same way you saw Christians before, well, now you're the one with the special knowledge and everybody else needs you. So that same misperception of Christian pride might follow you into your Christianity if it doesn't get stomped out <laughs> when you yourself become a Christian. Yeah. Well, that was mistake number one, pride in Christianity explicitly. And likewise with mistake number two, Screwtape says that the patient shouldn't be explicitly proud of his set as opposed to being proud of Christianity. So he shouldn't be proud of his set because Screwtape says that if, if that is the case, it'll produce social vanity, but that's nowhere near as good as we've seen before as spiritual pride. That's the really demonic, toxic stuff. And as I mentioned earlier, in Mere Christianity, we spent some time looking at pride in particular. And Lewis says something that shocks a lot of Christians when they read it. He says that unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that, they're mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. When you compare yourself to an infinite good being, <laughs> uh, you know, humility is, is really the only, uh, it's, it's the only thing that should, that should come from that. Um, of course, you know, the humility is that, that is the virtue that is opposed to pride. Um, again, uh, Aquinas calls it the, the withdrawal of the mind from the inordinate desire of great things <laughs> that, you know, there's a sense in which you just have to say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this much, and not much more, and and even on the entire spectrum of humanity, is nothing compared to God. You know, we read, uh, we Catholics at least, we read in a Sirach 10, the beginning of the pride of man is to fall off from God. You just can't be prideful if, if God is real, and, and you have some awareness of him. Uh, pride just makes absolutely no sense at all. The only way to do it is to ignore God and only look at that chosen set of others, those outside the circle that you can feel superior to. And, um, you know, both of those are just in, in complete contrast to the way God has made us and um, where we properly stand in reality. So to counterpoint of what Sirac says, this all puts me in mind of fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I often have spent a lot of time explaining fear of the Lord doesn't mean sort of a, a cowering, simpering in the corner. What it means is recognizing God is God and I am not. Recognizing that there is this massive gulf between us and that recognizing that and living out that difference accurately is going to be the start of right living. Yeah. And what we have to watch out for is if if we desire to have people think of us that way, there's the beginning of, of pride too. Um, Augustine says that pride imitates God inordinately. 
In other words, we know we want to be godlike in the sense that we want to be we want to echo his moral perfections and that sort of thing. But if we want people to stand in awe of us, yeah, that, that that's a very bad goal to have. <laughs> yeah, it's the last thing you want because you know um, you, if if you manage to get it in some degree, it's just it's just gonna it's gonna be like a drug. You know, it's it's you're just gonna want more. But again, when you really see where you are compared to what what God truly is like. It's just, it's a lot easier to have goals that make sense with what you actually are <laughs> rather than um, than what God is. Yeah, I'm reminded of you know, pop stars, rock stars, anyone that's in the public eye that is constantly fed a stream of adulation. And eventually at some point, they will become irrelevant. They will fall out of favor. And I don't know how you deal with that when you've been living and breathing adulation for years. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember it was on Carson or something, right? That one of the Beatles said that they're more popular than Jesus. Uh, it's like, I can't even remember which wow. one said it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it hasn't been that long and you know, most people don't even remember that anymore. Um, and I don't even remember it from experience. I just saw it somewhere in a book or something probably, but yeah, you think about these like aging rock stars that, that end up, dying of overdoses or just, or just straight up killing themselves. Um, yeah. Where do you go? Where do you go from there? You know, when, when you have the whole world, you can't settle for anything less. So yeah, it, it's a very dangerous place to be. And of course, Christians are not immune from this. I mean, if, if you just pay even the slightest attention to the news, I mean, look at the falls that we have seen lately, mm. you know, the kind of lives that people have led where, you know, they're out there on the circuit, you know, they're, they're big Christian rock stars. They got their names on a whole bunch of books and then you find out their private life is just absolutely, you know, destructive and immoral. Yeah, it has a way of getting in. You know, we're just we're not designed for for having glory, <laughs> the, the kind of glory that God alone deserves. And it, it messes us up when we get it. I really like that. <laughs> when you receive the kind of glory you, that you weren't built for, it just ends up destroying you. And paradoxically, we are destined for glory. C.S. Lewis has his wonderful sermon, The Weight of Glory. But it's funny, even there, he says that we can perhaps even think too much about our own glory, but we can't think too much about the glory of our neighbor. Just that mm. one move starts engendering some kind of humility in you, and you're looking out of yourself rather than towards yourself, because that rarely ends well. <laughs> so those are the mistakes. On to goals. So Screwtape gives Wormwood two particular goals. The first is that the key to success is confusion. What you want is to keep a sly self-congratulation mixing with all his thoughts and never allow him to raise the question, what precisely am I congratulating myself about? The idea of belonging to an inner ring, of being in a secret is very sweet to him. Play on that nerve. And that was the quote of the week. So Screwtape says that this is going to work if you keep him in a self-congratulatory mood, but don't let him think too hard about what he's congratulating himself about. What, about what am I actually being prideful? Because we saw in those two previous mistakes, he can't explicitly say it's his Christianity, otherwise he'll re realize how ridiculous and uh, what a contradiction in terms that is. And it also shouldn't really be pride in his set because that's just social vanity and it's like, eh, it's not great, but it, it's not what we're really going for here. And the other goal he gives is fostering a condescending attitude towards those outside of the group. That's, that's the real goal. He says, teach him, using the influence of this girl, when she is silliest, to adopt an air of amusement at things unbelievers say. Some theories which he may meet in modern Christian circles may here prove helpful. Theories, I mean, that place the hope of society in some inner ring of clerks, some trained minority of theocrats. What do you make of that? Yeah. So confuse and condescend. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, again, it's interesting to see kind of the, the razor's edge that um, screw tape sees here that, you know, th this could, this could very easily go wrong in, in two different ways. And, and he's just constantly having to be so careful not to go too far either way because it could backfire. And, uh, you know, to confuse something is, is to take two things that are distinct and try to make them one, you know, that confuse, that's where that word comes from. And, and I like how he says, you know, you, you got to keep the self-congratulation. It's got to be fused to, to these things, but don't ever, don't ever let him ask, 
what those things actually are, because then that confusion will break. <laughs> he'll he'll see that he's not congratulating himself on the things that he should be because they don't really actually go together, you know. Whereas if he sees them as going together, the Christianity and the high society, when those things are fused, it's not going to seem like it's a problem. But if he ever breaks them apart, he'll be able to discern <laughs> the difference between them. And then I think this whole idea of the inner ring, I mean, I, I think Lewis is pretty clearly um, kind of going after Gnosticism here. I mean, this is this is like a perfect description of the earliest heresy, this idea that you have this very small number of people who understand the things about God that nobody else does. Um, they've got their private teachings and, and the to the uninitiated, um, they're just ignorant. They're, they're just living out their lives with, without the light. You know, not that there aren't other groups. I mean, this this is kind of the basis of pretty much all your cults, too. <laughs> and I'd even say new atheism. I mean, what was one of the terms one of them used for themselves? Brights? Oh, calling them, yeah, calling themselves the brights. It's yeah. like, read some history. That's Gnosticism. This isn't good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that if, if you can if you can play on anybody's anybody's feelings of of or desire for, I should say, desire for hidden knowledge for for the kind of the the edge that 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 gives you. I, I remember as I was coming into the Catholic church, I was, I was fighting it with all my might. I mean, I, I you know, everybody thinks I just was enamored with Catholicism and, you know, love the, the bells and the smells. And that's why I became Catholic. But in reality, I, I really wasn't looking forward to being Catholic. <laughs> um, it has a lot more rules and stuff that weren't nearly as fun as being evangelical. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I looked into Eastern Orthodoxy and you know, I just I have to admit, one of the things that I loved about Eastern Orthodoxy is that most evangelicals didn't know anything about it. <laughs> you know, you tell an evangelical you're becoming Catholic, well, they, they've got a whole storehouse of of attacks and arguments and things and misapprehensions. Um, but you tell them you're becoming Orthodox, that, that's like the ninja of the of the Christian world. You know, like <laughs> what? You know, <laughs> and not Nobody just really because they always what, dress in black. Yeah, that's right. They hide everything behind those beards and those cool robes. <laughs> um, you know, th there was a part of me that just, I was attracted to that. Like, I like the idea that I could be part of something that people don't already think they know about. Mm. You know, um, if I say I'm a Baptist, people already think they know everything about me. If I say I'm Catholic, they think I, they know everything about me. Um, but you tell somebody you're, you're Greek Orthodox, ooh, now you're like mysterious. And that's kind of cool. You know, people like that. Um, and, you know, that was a draw. And I think that it, it always has been, you know, from Gnostics all the way up to Mormons, you know, they love to have their little hidden secrets and their secret handshakes and their little symbols and the part of the temple that, you know, the uninitiated aren't allowed to go in. And there's just something about mystery and hiddenness that, that draws people. And so the trouble is, if, if we feel like we are able to, to cross that barrier and become the keepers of that mystery it just, it goes back to being prideful again. Cause it's, you know, these guys aren't interested in going out and evangelizing. They're, they're not wanting to learn the secrets so that they can go tell people and bring people into the circle. The, the interest is holding on to that hiddenness so that you're the mysterious one and you're the keeper of the knowledge. And yeah, if, if Wormwood is successful in navigating the man into that sense, then he's probably going to you know, get into the kind of spiritual pride that is deadly. Whereas, you know, maybe everybody else, even, even if, um, what's his name? Slim trumpet. <laughs> even if he is right in his assessment of, of the women in this group and that sort of thing, um, they're still basically innocent because they just, they haven't chosen it. They don't even really realize they're doing it, but if they can convince the young man, the patient that you could be part of the elite that you think these people are, then it could be, it could be pretty bad for him. And you are better than everybody else. Yeah, it's it's a it's like a concoction of sinful <laughs> desires that that are all you know being put together into into this cocktail that's um, this elixir that somebody would find very difficult to stay away from. There's just a lot of fun things that <laughs> uh, would appear to come out from that. And this is, I think, really the culmination of the strategy that Screwtape has had for a few letters now. Uh, a, f a few letters ago, he mentioned, okay, we're not going to be able to extricate religion from this guy's life. Let's make him a Pharisee. Let's turn him. Let's see what we can actually do with all of these good things coming into his life. Let's see how we can twist it. 
And then the letter wraps up with Screwtape telling Wormwood to stop filling his letters with rubbish about the war. Uh, he says, I'm not in the least interested in knowing how many people in England have been killed by bombs. In what state of mind they died, I can learn from the office in, at this end that they were going to die sometime, I knew already. Please keep your mind on your work. And this is something of Screwtape's disposition that we find throughout the book. He is results focused. He doesn't care about death per se, but about the state of the soul of those who died. And the only thing that he thinks Wormwood should care about at this point in time is the state of the soul of his patient. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, once again, you know, I mean, Lewis, Lewis has mastered this idea that, you know, the, the devil can't create, right? He can only twist. He can only take what exists and try to break it. And so there's a sense in which Screwtape is saying true things here. You know, all you really should care about is this person's soul. I mean, that, that could be preached from a pulpit, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, oh, let's not worry about the election. The real problem, you know, the real problem is sin and reaching people's souls. I mean, that'll preach, right? That's <laughs> And it is strictly true. Yeah, there, there is truth, right? And of course, you know, the, the twist in it is that it's, it's not either or and that not caring about massive death and especially the importance of that particular war would, would be demonic in itself and, and sinful. Um, but again, we just see, I just find it almost, you know, not humorous, but it's just great the way Lewis has done this, that, that he's taken these truths that if you ignore the context and you forget who's saying them, it's like, yeah, that, that sounds right. That sounds like something I can get behind. But then for some reason, it, it must be wrong because the, the demon's saying it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think it, it just it's, a, it's just such an artistic way of getting people maybe out of their bumper sticker, you know, thought life comfort zone where, yeah, there, there is something that is important about the individual souls, um, but that can't be all. That, that can't be the only thing. If you really actually care about people, you will also care about when they die and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, I just I just found that little addition, um, just a humorous twist on kind of the standard gospel presentation. Well, I think that's a good point to jump over and do unscrewing screw tape. As we said at the beginning of this episode, we can't always trust what screw tape says. So sometimes we have to decipher it. Sometimes we have to turn it back around the other way, sift it for truth. Well, in this section, we give a few simple do's and don'ts, uh, some advice for Christians to combat screw tape in this particular letter. I'll kick off with my first one. Do be aware of cliques. And I might also add an additional one. Beware of how you pronounce cliques. (laughs) Yeah, it's a strange little word. Um, I actually kind of prefer the way you say it because it keeps me from thinking that you're just talking about some strange noise. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this this is always, you know, well, just like we were saying, um, the devil takes good things and twists it. There's nothing wrong with community. There's nothing wrong with getting together with like-minded people people that share interests. But I, I think a clique um, maybe could be defined as taking that community and that culture and making it exclusive. Mm. When it starts becoming about who's in and who's out, especially if the focus is on who's out, um, now you've, you've, you've gone beyond community to something that is, that is problematic. I just realized I have no idea how we've gone this long in an episode and not mentioned the amazing movie Mean Girls. Because that is really the embodiment of everything Screwtape is talking about here. <laughs> we, we could have just played that and, uh, you know, just, just maybe labeled some of the characters with different names. <laughs> well, let me give a few more of the unscrewing Screwtape suggestions I had. Do not be immediately dismissive of the ideas of those outside your circle. Yeah, I think this is a huge one. You know, e- even if you're not excluding others because of some perceived lack in them, you know, there's just a lot of people think things for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> and we, we don't want to be like the girl, right, where we just have these untested thoughts that we've just gotten so used to that we just have a knee jerk reaction to anything against them. Um, but also, you know, there, there's some incredibly bright, good, moral people that have thoughts that go against ours. And it can be so easy. This is something I've been trying to teach my kids that. You know, just because I've explained to you why Christianity is true and why this other, you know, political or religious group is wrong, like that, that doesn't elevate you. <laughs> if you can't, if you can't tell me what their ideas are and tell me why they believe it 
and give me arguments for it, then I'm not really interested in, in your dismissal because that, that's just attitude. That's not, you're not doing anything better than they are. Maybe they've thought about their thoughts a lot more than you have and, and you're only able to dismiss them because nobody's here to, to defend them. And I think this is important, you know, if for no other reason than even if you just accidentally believe the truth, you know, what happens when you go out into the world and you um, encounter these ideas and a defense of those ideas for the first time? Mm. And that can be very shocking. And that's one thing I try to prepare my students and my children for is, yeah, here's here's the three best arguments against our view or for this other view. And that's another reason I love Aquinas so much is that, you know, as you read through something like the Summa, you know, it's like, well, here here's five wrong views and, and the arguments for them, you know, and he gets through all that before he tells you what he even thinks. And then he goes through and answers those. But an, an attitude of dismissiveness doesn't serve anybody. Yeah. You need to arrive at your conclusions carefully and, and respectfully disagree with others. Yeah, I would agree. That's something I like about Aquinas. It's very typical to straw man somebody to offer their weakest defenses. Aquinas doesn't. He really tries to steel man them. What is the best response that somebody could give and then deal with that, not the weakest? And another thing I thought of when you were talking about uh, ideas from outside of your circle, we mentioned the Kalam cosmological argument earlier. That comes to us via Islam. That's right. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to be dismissive of that. I think it's a really good argument for the existence of God. Yeah, I remember always being surprised early on as I was reading Aquinas where you know, he, he talks about the philosopher and, and the commentator, and he doesn't even use their names. It's like, it's like they're, they're, they're above that, you know, like, it's, it's they like just the get apostle. Title. Yeah. And then I find out, well, wait a minute, you know, the philosopher is this pagan Greek, you know, uh, and, and the, this other guy is, is this Muslim philosopher. And yeah, it was just shocking. Like, yeah, he, he actually takes these guys seriously because, you know, he really thinks they have good things to say. Maybe they're not complete. Maybe they're not perfect, but you know, Aquinas wasn't afraid to find truth anywhere. And what that does is that when you do find out what Aquinas thinks, that just elevates the stature of that thing so much because you know that this guy isn't just a pushover. He he didn't just he's not just preaching. You know, he can he can back it up and he knows what everybody else thinks. And um that just that only helps you retain the truth yourself and, and persuade others. And that actually does remind me of a, a very good apologetic tool that can sometimes be used when you meet somebody who disagrees with you to actually ask them, why do you think I might believe this? Or why do you think that group X believes this? And if they can't actually articulate the reasoning that they're likely to hear, chances are they've actually never explored it at all. Yeah, that, the why question is, you know, it's like I tell people as they're getting started in apologetics that, you know, asking somebody what they believe and why they believe it. That, that's 90% of the conversation <laughs> that you need to have. Um, and even, even if you can't answer them or destroy their arguments or anything like that, you know, the, the fact that you've built that base, that foundation is so important and you need to do it for yourself too. You know, I mean, again, as a convert, I meet a lot of cradle Catholics and, you know, every once in a while, we'll kind of get into backslapping mode, you know, where you kind of realize that, okay, we're all good Catholics here in the room. And now we're going to start kind of making fun of, of other people. And I try to think of myself as an equal opportunity offender. Um, <laughs> I'll say things in class, you know, to Catholics that I just go, yeah, you know what, honestly, if you said, if you had said that to me in, in, you know, like in a coffee shop or something like that, I, I would have destroyed you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's how I would have done it. Bam, 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 bam. Now, what do you got? nothing exactly you know and it, it just you know i get it you know because when i was over here and i was in a room full of those people we were laughing at you you know now i'm in this room with this group of people and we're laughing at them everybody does it but you know um, you don't want to get into feeling like you are just so secure and right just because your buddies all agree with you they're your buddies for a reason and and it doesn't matter how many of you get together and affirm one another if, if none of you have done the homework <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, you know, it's it's still zero. Well, let's wrap up the last two items I had on unscrewing screw tape. I said, do be grateful for your friends. And the key word there is grateful. The thing that the patient can't have is gratitude for being part of this group. It's when it's self-entitlement 
that's when it's a problem. So I think if you're grateful for your friends, you're looking out of yourself towards them and you see the goodness in their lives, it will help defend you a little bit of that against that nasty spiritual pride that Screwtape is so keen to foster. Yeah, I think you said it perfectly. Yeah, we, we haven't earned this. <laughs> and even if we have, we have to be careful not to take pride in it. And that's the last one. Do consider what you take pride in and why. Again, when we were going through mere Christianity, Lewis speaks about there are different senses in which we use that word. You can have pride in your school, pride in your country. And all of these things are okay in and of themselves, but they can fairly easily be twisted into something that Screwtape can use. Right. Yeah. The, the key, I, th I think what's great about scripture <laughs> um, is that when it actually talks about something that, that you're, you're concerned about, it, it can be so clear. And I, I love St. Paul's statement again, you know, that the key is not to belittle yourself. The key is not to lie about your weaknesses or your strengths. Um, it's just to be accurate. You know, think of yourself accurately. Um, work on what is weak. Uh, try to exemplify what is strong. Um, but but even in that, even if you are just the, the perfect model of a certain virtue <laughs> or characteristic, you know, remember that you are but dust, right? I mean, it's land. Um, and uh, that's a good time to remember that, yeah, at the end of the day, you're going to be a pile of dust. And God is still so much better than you that even if you're a pretty decent human uh, in the grand scheme of being, you're, you're still pretty, pretty far to one end. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a nice way to wrap up. Doug, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. That was fun. Uh, where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, the, the online hub for all of my activity is douglasbeaumont.com. And if you just go there, you can get to everything else from the menu. And that's books and YouTube and articles and all that good stuff. And one in particular that I wanted to call out was the message behind the movie. Back in the days when I did more youth work, I used to lean on this kind of thing very heavily. Could you just give us like a, a one minute summary of what that book's about? Yeah, sure. So um, it, there's basically two parts. The first one is it gives an objective way to understand what a movie's message is. If the message, if, if the movie has a message, this is kind of the art and science of script writing. Th these are the secrets that uh, the script writers know in how to, to get a message across. And, and this helps us be more objective when we evaluate films. We don't just react to a certain scene, but we look at the whole thing overall. And so once I've walked the reader through how movies communicate, then we look at some of the major messages that can be put out there that are directly in contrast to the Christian worldview. So if it's an attack on truth, attack on reality, if it's an attack on God's existence or religion, um, then I go through some apologetic responses. And basically the whole book is, is really to help people evangelize because everybody loves movies. Um, you can always get somebody into a conversation about film. And if you've got you know, the wherewithal to kind of speak intelligently about it, that can be a really great open door to counter any anti-Christian messages that you run across. Great stuff. And that's all in one book. <laughs> great stuff. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And we'd also like to thank all of our top tier supporters, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. Please check us out on social media. Check out our website, pinesofjack.com. And just so you know, my personal love language is iTunes reviews. So show me a little bit of love and leave us a nice review. Or leave us a terrible review. I'm actually still looking forward to the time when somebody gives us one star and just rips into us. Either way, it'll be fun. And join us next time when we're going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>